continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am not Justin Burke. Um, he is he is missing today, but I am Chris the Chew Manchu. Justin is with us in spirit. But today we have our great producer Brian, as well as my other co-host Nick. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey. Tonight our guest is Dr. Gasan Wabe to discuss inflammatory bowel disease. But first, someone should remind us what we do on the show. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Brian, to you. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Wabe. Dr. Wabe serves as the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Seattle Children's Hospital. He is a professor in pediatrics and gastroenterology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. His research interests include advanced management of moderate to severe Crohn's disease and colitis in the outpatient and inpatient settings, managing complicated Crohn's disease, mucosal healing in IBD, navigating surgical options in IBD, and novel therapies. He is actively involved in education as teaching faculty in medical student education, resident training, and fellow physician specialty training. In his spare time, Dr. Wabe enjoys cooking, gardening, and hanging out with his kids. So without further ado, let's scope it out. That was good. Hello, Dr. Wabe. And is it okay if we call you Gassan? Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. So we're so happy to have you here to talk about IBD. But first, before we get into this, we sort of want to ask you a couple questions just to get to know you. So... I guess if you could give us sort of like a, you know, a short, you know, sometimes we call it one-liners, but any sort of short way you want to tell us, the audience, to get to know you a little bit, what do you do in medicine and maybe a little bit of what you do outside of medicine? Uh, sure. I, uh, I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Seattle Children's Hospital at the University of, uh, of Washington and uh, always loved the digestive tract for multiple reasons and um, enjoy doing my uh, my clinical work, my uh, research work, uh, my focus is also education in IBD. Uh, outside of work, I'm still connected to the gut. I love to I love to cook and uh, uh, to garden. And um, as I get older, I'm trying to rotate different sports so I can exercise based on which joint is feeling okay for that for that week. So uh, I think that sums it up. It's <laughs> great. It's great. Brian or Nick, do you guys have any questions? Sure. So you mentioned loving food. What would you say is your, your favorite dish to make? Ooh, to make. Okay. To cook. So I, I, I love braising. Um, I think uh, braising is one way to get the maximum flavor out of any um, uh, food item. As you know, I think we all probably should veer away from, uh, from animal protein. So this is one way to actually reduce how much animal protein you eat in a dish because you get more flavor out of... Um, you know, the cuts that you braise with smaller amounts. And so, uh, you know, it hits both purposes of eating well and, and reducing your um, animal protein consumption too. Braising such a good, like, and we're recording this in wintertime right now, such a nice, warm, wintry food, I feel. Right, right. It takes the, takes the temperature in a room like five degrees when you talk about braising, right? <laughs> totally, totally. 
Nick, you got something? You got a question? Yeah. Um, so I always like to know what's the best piece of advice you got when you were like in training? Um, I think it, it was to, to really listen when you have the chance of uh, learning from somebody to really listen and, uh, and pay attention to hints that uh, come across when you're uh, doing your clinical work. And I think I learned this in my career too. If, if I have a hint, you know, it's something, you know, that just a fleeting instant or fleeting comment that somebody around you uh, says, um, I've, I've been the luckiest guy in the world to surround myself with so many talented people that if, if there's a hint about something I'm doing, I'm, I've always sort of stopped and listened. And oftentimes it was a great, um, a great tip to make my, uh, my care for my patient much better. Uh, so listening. And the other one is uh, parents' intuition. I always will trust my parents' intuition. If they say something's off, you know, pause and and take a good listen. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you for letting us get to know you. Should we just get into the case, guys? Let's do it. All right, Brian, take it away. So we've got a case from Cashlack Children's. Our young man is named Colin Oscope. He's a 12-year-old boy with no past medical history who's brought to Cashlack outpatient clinic by his mother for what she describes as a, quote, stomach bug that has lasted about a month now. He endorses diarrhea two to three times a day for the past two weeks, but doesn't know if he's had blood or mucus in his stool. Since his last office visit six months ago for a well child checkup, he's lost two pounds, and his mother thinks something's off. His vitals are within normal limits. He's lying down when you arrive, maybe a bit pale on exam, and has mild, diffuse tenderness in his belly. So to start with, what are you concerned about? It's an intriguing family name. That's what I would start with. Um, I would love to dig deeper into this uh, very impressive name here. Beyond that, I, I uh, you know, I, I think in general, I, I look at uh, differentials that we sometimes uh, throw as, as physicians. You know, it's probably viral. It's probably a bug. And I find it very extremely annoying uh, if I were to be a patient, you know, receiving that differential. It's probably a bug. So I, I try to... Uh, Put it in perspective uh, to my patient, to my patients, my my residents, my students, as well. That um, you know, if you're getting all these bugs and everything you see is a bug, 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 then you know something's wrong with your patient's immune system. So, oftentimes when when uh, when I hear you know I was in the ED and I was told you know it's just a viral thing, I think that's a wimpy explanation for what merits a bit a bit more of a thought process there. So looking at the at the case. Um, you know, obviously, this uh, this child has uh, symptoms that are lasting multiple weeks. You know, about a month. Uh, in general, we think about acute uh, events like an acute occasional infection. Most kids probably get you know three ish uh, viral infections, gastrointestinal viral infections a year, from my observation, and maybe three to four respiratory infections a year. Of course, the dynamic with COVID and and um, Isolation changed uh, quite a bit there, and also eating out and and uh, uh, versus eating, you know, something that is prepared at home. So the the um, first thought of my mind is, if somebody gets a bug, most bugs are gone within three to five days. For somebody to have symptoms for about a month, it's more than just an infection, uh, with the rare exception of somebody who is extremely immune immune suppressed, you know, has an immune deficiency or is taking a medication that suppresses the immune system which does not sound like um, our patient, uh, Colin, has any of that. And then, of course, the weight loss, right? When, when you hear any symptom in a child, abdominal pain or diarrhea or fatigue, when you tag it with uh, weight loss, well, growth 
um, consistent continuing growth is one of the key features of a healthy body. And that always is a, is a guaranteed flag for something more serious than just a fleeting food-related uh, symptom that your patients have. So that's what's catching my eye, the duration of these symptoms and the fact that um, uh, there is some, some unintentional, I'm assuming unintentional uh, weight loss. Now, would would you see? Would you say two pounds is something typical you might see? Or uh, so obviously we're we're talking a little bit about IBD a little bit soon. Now, it's can can other diseases present like this? What are your other differentials besides that can be diarrhea for a couple of weeks plus the weight loss? Yeah, that's a great point. So so we would see weight loss with a transient acute diarrheal infection, acute gastroenteritis. You know, limits the appetite. Uh, you know. Kids can get nauseous, they can throw up. Diarrhea that happens during an infection could be intense and it eases off after. And sometimes we see diarrhea last for um, a greater number of weeks after an acute infection. However, the weight loss is interesting because if you lose weight for a couple of days because of an infection, uh, you tend to gain it fast afterwards. Um, You see this actually interestingly in kids who come for colonoscopies. Right, because of the clean out uh, that we use to prep them uh, for the colonoscopies, everybody loses a couple of pounds. And by the time you see them in clinic in a week or two for follow up, uh, these two pounds are are already back on, and you know, if not more. So um, I always take it seriously. Of course, you know, we know that obesity is, uh, is you know higher body mass indices in general, obesity or overweight status. Um, is rising, especially during COVID. COVID has contributed a lot to that. So if this uh, 12-year-old was, um, you know, 65 kilograms or 70 kilograms, and they lost, you know, one kilogram. Is that as significant? You know, obviously not. But I, I still think um, we should try to explain all uh, weight changes uh, that are beyond, you know, one percent or two percent, in my opinion. Uh, even if it's a, a patient who's starting from a high body mass index, uh, uh, and, and that can fool us sometimes because. High body mass index does not mean that a patient is unlikely to get a chronic bowel illness that has to do with weight loss. So with those symptoms, you know, I'm starting to think, you know, number one, a prolonged infection would be unlikely. One way to tease out if this is an infection or not is um, whether individuals around colon have gotten the same symptoms. So the exposure to that bug, if it was an infection, would be in multiple people, you know, unless colon is um, the chef in the house and eats by themselves, then uh, that might be the one exception, which I would imagine in this scenario is unlikely. So in this case, I'm thinking uh, towards more chronic disorders. It's been over two weeks of diarrhea. Again, there's weight loss. I'm thinking, you know, some disorders that cause um, some degree of malabsorption, the nutrients are not absorbed, and some inflammation potentially in the bowel that causes um, the malabsorption, but also speeds up the motility within the gut. Inflammation generates muscle contractions, and that's part of why the diarrhea could show up in chronic inflammation. In addition, the inflammation can stimulate some of the pumps um, inside the intestinal lining, and these generate more fluid, which is diarrhea. So there are multiple reasons for inflammation to produce uh, diarrhea. So in this case, I'm thinking, you know, could this be something like celiac disease? We know celiac disease is roughly um, 1% of the of the general population in uh, in North America, and that's a differential that we should explore. Definitely thinking inflammatory bowel disease because that's um, 
uh, I would I would say it's an uncommon and not a, not an uncommon uh, condition that we see. And again, it's one of those things that we have to look um, to look for. Um, of course, I would revisit dietary causes of diarrhea with this. Um, again, the weight loss makes me take take this uh, scenario with uh, the urge to rule out malabsorptive conditions or inflammatory conditions. Uh, but it also makes me uh, want to explore what is this um, patient's diet right now, and could that be contributing to the diarrhea or not? Although, again, the weight loss is is again a big uh, item here that that I do not want to ignore. So maybe if we get a little bit more from you know our examination, might give us a little more information. Brian, do we do we have anything more about uh, how this this child looks? Um, he looks tired. He looks a little bit pale. Um, but otherwise he's having trouble pinning his symptoms down to anything general fatigue. And, and like I mentioned, was lying down when he walked into the room and you wonder why was he lying down? And he says, I'm just, just tired, just felt like sleeping. So this, um, you know, raises also, um, some interesting points. First is in conditions uh, such as inflammatory bowel disease, you know, Crohn's disease or ulcerative um, colitis, um, you, you, tend to see diarrhea sometimes happen at night. There are very, very few reasons why uh, a child, um, or for that matter, an adult, would actually wake up from sleep to use a restroom to have a bowel movement. And um, in children who have you know, functional constipation or functional um, incapricis, where stools could happen at night, stooling can happen at night uh, because of the large volume of retained stools, oftentimes this, is, this happens without waking the patient up. However, in cases where you have inflammation, um, nighttime diarrhea happens with a muscle contraction, which tends to be painful, and uh, that wakes the patient up at night with the goal of using using the restroom. So that's one item uh, in this child's history that I would love to tease out. How uh, you know we know the the bowel movements are frequent. Uh, do do we know if any of those bowel movements are at night or not? Uh, one big big uh, uh, differentiating point between. Uh, diarrhea that I want to take more seriously than than other types of uh, of diarrhea. All diarrhea is serious, to be uh, to be uh, fair to to all types of diarrhea here, but but this would you know raise my suspicion for an inflammatory condition. The fatigue, you know, so that again raises um, uh, a question here, which is where is it coming from? There are several layers to this. If if somebody has chronic bowel inflammation, uh, their fatigue could be because of nutrients they're not absorbing. Um, it could also be from waking up at night to use the restroom because interrupted sleep means that you can sleep for eight hours, but your the quality of your sleep is inadequate. So you're very tired the next morning and you can't make up for that deficit unless you get really protected, uninterrupted, deep sleep. And, uh, you know, chronic inflammation, um, we, we don't think about it that way, but chronic inflammation is almost like running a marathon. You know, your immune cells that are overactive in chronic inflammation are using up calories. Um, so that's another yet another reason why uh, kids could be tired if they have chronic bowel inflammation, you know, like inflammatory bowel disease, on top of uh, on top of the nutrient issue that uh, that could be um, contributing to their um, fatigue and anemia, of course, which um, we can discuss in a little bit. You know, that that comes with inflammation and adds to the fatigue. So Colin comes in and, and says this time, actually, his diarrhea is bloody, or maybe mom has noticed that there's been some blood. She's noticed some blood in the toilet. Does that raise IBD um, right up to the top of your differential? How does that change things? 
Yeah, it certainly it certainly does. What's interesting, you know, most kids past age, what, six or seven may not, number one, look before they flush the toilet and they're private about going to the toilet, right? So this is a piece of information that sometimes doesn't come up until much, much later that there is blood with the stools. And sometimes, you know, it scares the kids and, and they feel like they've done something wrong and they don't do not share that piece of information with their uh, parent. And so um, seeing blood with the stools definitely raises the, the question about inflammation in the bowel. Uh, blood with uh, conditions like inflammatory bowel disease comes because of the um, ulceration that happens within the gut. And the way to think about the, the generation of an ulcer, for example, in Crohn's disease or, or ulcerative colitis, is that the immune system um, is quite revved up and uh, it's generating a fight. You know, usually this is quite beneficial in the case of an infection or you know food poisoning you know a protein that your body is is uh, not liking and needs to expel and so this barrage of um, inflammatory cells descends on on the intestine with the intent of releasing a lot of their chemicals to fight off this offending protein or antigen or you know bacteria or virus and uh, with this uh, activity comes uh, sort of destructive enzymes that break down the tissue. You know, the immune system cannot select and say, I'm going to destroy this one single protein in this uh, bacteria. Instead, it launches, you know, all, all attack with all it's got uh, to break down the, the proteins in that area. But that includes your own body proteins and structures. And so that's how you end up with an ulcer. And of course, you have blood vessels feeding the lining of the intestine or the wall of the intestine. So in ulcerative colitis, it's just the lining that gets ulcerated, uh, the mucosa. And in Crohn's disease, it's the entire thickness of the wall, and, and that's where you see the blood coming from. However, you know, in probably a, a good uh, percentage of patients with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, uh, these symptoms could, uh, could fool us. In other words, uh, there are patients with ulcerative colitis who might present with constipation and not diarrhea. And the reason is... Um, if their inflammation is dominant in the uh, rectosigmoid colon, um, it almost acts as a, uh, a barrier to the passage of stool. So it's a very swollen, inflamed intestine uh, or part of the colon, and it sort of holds everything up. So now you don't see diarrhea, you see constipation. And these patients might present with belly pain, uh, maybe some weight loss, uh, maybe some anemia. And paradoxically, um, you... you um, see some patients with um, ulcerative colitis have diarrhea without having the blood. In other words, their ulceration is superficial and does not hit a layer that has a lot of blood vessels that get broken with the inflammation. So you see diarrhea, but you don't see uh, blood. So I think blood raises the um, likelihood of inflammation, but absence of blood doesn't mean the likelihood of inflammation is, is not there. And, uh, you know, seeing blood, of course, with a child who's fatigued, who's pale, makes me wonder about their anemia and how bad is the anemia and um, what level are we worried about this child's count. So we would look at uh, transfusion potentially or um, iron supplementation. So let's rewind a little bit. You, you mentioned a couple of diseases. You talked about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and um, inflammatory bowel disease. Can you uh, define inflammatory bowel disease or IBD for, for us in the audience so we have a better understanding of what we're, talk, what we're talking about now? Of course. Um, so inflammatory bowel disease uh, is probably one of the most um, common chronic bowel inflammatory conditions in 
children, and I would I would extend that to adults um, as well. The uh, umbrella title here is inflammatory bowel disease. So uh, historically, it's been divided into two phenotypes. One is uh, Crohn's disease, and one is ulcerative colitis. And the traditional breakdown of both conditions was that ulcerative colitis is chronic intestinal inflammation that only happens in the colon. And in ulcerative colitis, it is the mucosa layer of the colon only versus Crohn's disease, where it could occur in any part of the uh, gastrointestinal tract from the mouth all the way to the um, anus. And it could involve the three layers, um, you know, the, mus- the uh, mucosa, the muscularis, the serosa within uh, the intestine. Um, however, we know now that there's probably a, 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 a huge spectrum here of phenotypes that overlap. Um, you know, mixed features, colonic disease with a little bit of small bowel disease, some colonic disease with, gastro, with gastroduodenal disease. So a lot of phenotypes that overlap here with, uh, with each other. In my own practice, I try um, uh, to avoid sort of caging my patients with either type of inflammatory bowel disease into one or the other, because again, I think there's a huge overlap between these phenotypes. And I worry that if you tell a patient you have X disease or Y disease, you've sort of caged them into the, the Google search term, right? Uh, families will go even before, you know, you make the diagnosis. Once you say, I'm suspecting, you know, Crohn's disease, they're likely to go, you know, Google search Crohn's disease. And, and then you, you'll read whatever, you know, the most, I guess, pushed uh, stories based on Google's algorithm about Crohn's disease. And that might not actually reflect what, you know, in, in this case, Colin might have, right? So I don't want to cage Colin into this or that. Try to tell my, my uh, kids that, um, you know, you have colonic inflammation and gastric inflammation. We're going to call this Colin's inflammation. And it happens to be under IBD, but we're not going to go into more details than, uh, than that. Now, a thing to know about uh, inflammatory bowel disease is, uh, is that as frustrating as this answer can be, we have no known etiology for it yet. Um, and it's the honest answer that I give to my patients who always, you know, we're all human and we all want to know why, why did this happen? And I try to outline this early on in my conversation with my patients that as of today, we have no reason for it. It's not food or infection or uh, something you did or your family did, or you could have done or should have done, you know, to prevent this from happening. And that's important to know. And, um, the more we know about, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, the more we we uh, tend to be less confident about any clues about its causes. In other words, uh, there was a period of time when when you know the genetic causes of IBD was was the topic, right? Um, searching for different mutations and and uh, linking mutations to certain phenotypes, and uh, you know after decades of really hard work that very intelligent people uh, conducted. We ended up with you know you know remarkable statistics that that looked something like you know twin concordance of Crohn's disease, so having an identical twin who lives in the same household, eats the same stuff, has the same DNA, although there might be you know minute differences between identical twins and, and their DNA. And I read this somewhere, so don't ask me about details about this point. But let's you know for the most part, I mean, there's nobody closer to your DNA than your identical twin, right? But even then, the risk of both twins having Crohn's disease would be 35%, right? And if it was a genetic disorder, you'd expect it to be close to 100%. That's not the case. 
uh, if it was in, uh, you know, environmental, you know, for twins who live in the same household, eat the same food for the most part, um, you know, are exposed to the same environmental factors, you know, 35% tells you it's, it's not just the environment. So um, my own read into this personally is, is really the fact that um, I, I think there's a lot of randomness that occurs in our biology that we have no control of. And the randomness doesn't necessarily happen because of a clear trigger. There's just innate randomness in, uh, in our biology. And I think to me that might, uh, might explain why we haven't yet been able to identify you know, a single cause for this. And of course, the envir environment, the, the diet, the um, geography we live in, the genetic influences, of course, all of that must play to some degree into the behavior of our immune system. But it certainly goes to say that that's not the entire story. Awesome. Whenever I hear that we don't really know why, and you, you mentioning the immune system, I always, always wonder, is IBD like considered to be an autoimmune disease or disorder? So I, I like to break down the question to ask, you know, what is the definition of an autoimmune disease? And I think if the, the general definition is my own immune cell is fighting my own body, it sounds like it's auto and immune, right? So to me, it, it means that there's no external uh, factor that stimulated the immune system to target it. So in some capacity, I think it's an autoimmune uh, condition. However, you know, honestly, as a physician, I, I would say, I'm not sure what that means in terms of any implication. You know, some, some individuals might feel comfortable with the idea of, of an autoimmune condition because it, it's sort of deliberating. It says I have no control over it or I didn't cause it, which I think is actually a good thing to know. Um, so I'd like to call it out as a as sort of a guilt-free uh, disorder for the kids and their parents because, you know, as a parent, you know, I always think, you know, what I do affects my children. If something wrong happens to my kids, then it must be my, you know, responsibility, my fault or it caused this. So it's important for parents um, uh, and, and children to know that, uh, again, there's nothing they could have done uh, to cause this. And even parents who have IBD themselves, who, uh, you know, are in clinic with their kids being diagnosed with IBD, there's quite a bit of guilt that is carried there, that, that this is the genetic gift or, or legacy that they left for their children. And, and I make a point of saying, well, it's the exception and the rule that, um, that there's a family history of IBD in patients with IBD. Um, so saying that's autoimmune, I think carries some of that, some of those connotations. And, and I think it's a good thing to just, uh, you know, flat out tell the family that it's really not their fault that they, that they caused this. I was wondering if you could tell us more about, um, maybe who gets IPD, but probably a better way to ask this question is who gets underdiagnosed. One of the things we're talking a lot about are disparities. Are there disparities um, racially, socioeconomically, or, or otherwise in the diagnosis or even in the management of IBD? These are great questions, uh, Brian, and, and I'm glad you brought, uh, brought those up. What we know about IBD is um, it affects all individuals of all walks of life, different backgrounds, uh, different ethnicities. Interesting research was done uh, about um, immigrants to the United States and the risk of uh, developing IBD. And we know that after uh, a generation or so that the risk matches the risk of um, IBD in that community. So you sort of take out the ethnic background, lower potentially lower risk because we don't see IBD as often in uh, other parts of the world. But by the time you know, you're a generation in, that risk tends to get closer to your baseline risk for that, um, for that area. 
And the age groups where IBD happens is, you know, the, the younger individuals. So there's a peak between the ages of 10 and 20 years of age. There's another peak that is about 20 to 40. That said, we see IBD with certain phenotypes happen in infancy. There are some types of IBD that happen within two to three weeks of, of life. Um, certainly, IBD could happen in, um, uh, in the elderly. Um, so any age, again, any background. I think what we notice with, uh, with um, uh, patients of different backgrounds is um, some disparity in um, the time it takes to make the diagnosis. I think pediatricians in general are actually more, uh, or pedi pediatric health care providers, um, are more attuned to um, children, again, regardless of um, other, you know, confounding um, or distracting uh, um, points about them that um, makes us more eager or jumpy or more attuned to ruling out chronic uh, uh, diseases. Uh, but we do think that it doesn't translate across different uh, patient backgrounds, unfortunately. So there is a latent diagnosis, for example, in uh, patients uh, who are African-American. Um, delay in accessing some of the more effective uh, treatments sometimes uh, based on um, the socioeconomic status or um, uh, background. And these are disparities that uh, finally, you know, have come up to the light and, and they certainly deserve a lot of attention from uh, from our community. Thank you so much. I appreciate you talking a little bit about that because it's such an important thing for us to keep in mind as we take care of all of our patients. So going back to our case here, so, you know, say we have, so we have this kid, he's, you know, in the emergency department, you know, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Just short of colonoscopy, you know, you said earlier that, you know, you would, you'd be really interested to see what a CBC looked like. What are some other tests you think would be good for us to, to send? Um, and what are things that you, you probably shouldn't be sending, <laughs> which is always think one thing that I always think about in terms of low value care. Absolutely. And it's important, right? Because, uh, because we want to be able to provide, you know, the best care for as many patients. So, as much as we are trained to think uh, more about our individual patient, I think it's actually a great point that you bring up, Christopher, which is how do we think about, you know, a more effective, valuable way to, to look after patients. So I appreciate that comment. So for this patient coming in with gastrointestinal symptoms um, and with fatigue and looking pale, um, so I'm thinking, you know, this is chronic bowel inflammation. IBD is one of the highest things in my differential. You know, we talked about celiac disease as a, as a differential. In your office, I think it uh, is very reasonable to start with um, a simple blood count, inflammatory markers such as a CRP or a sedimentation rate. And then it's more of an and or for the uh, ESR and CRP. Um, ESR, you know, takes a little bit more blood. So if it's a two-year-old patient, you know, difficult um, to have a blood sample from smaller veins. The CRP, you only need a tiny, tiny fraction of blood versus um, the ESR. So that's, you know, something to think about. And um, in this patient who looks pale, I might look at iron levels, you know, iron saturation, uh, serum ferritin, keeping in mind that ferritin is an acute phase reactant that goes up um, with inflammation. Um, and that's why iron saturation could be helpful. I would consider, you know, looking at uh, celiac uh, markers for this patient, although the index of suspicion for IBD is high enough that I know I'm very extremely likely to perform an upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy. An upper endoscopy is the gold standard to diagnose celiac disease. So do I really need the celiac screen in this setting? 
So if you know it was in your office and you're uh, trying to triage whether this patient needs a referral or not, I think it makes sense to send it. If I see the patient in my office, I know I'm going to perform an upper endoscopy. I might skip that. You know, stool studies um, are an interesting question. So this is a longer um, duration of symptoms. So I'm thinking infection is less likely. One exception might be if uh, someone has exposure to uh, to Giardia, repeat exposure to Giardia, uh, with non-bloody diarrhea. You know, it makes me wonder if uh, if that's a worthy differential. So well water that is untreated. Um, you know, a frequent camper who uh, happens to be exposed to um, uh, lake water and drinks from it, spring water. Um, so these are, you know, specific populations of patients that I think, you know, the history will tease out if this is a high risk or a lower risk. But that would mean a repeat infection, right? Because it's, it's not very common for GRDA to be a chronic uh, inflammatory condition. And then um, I, I think, you know, th- there is um, some role for um, stool studies to differentiate uh, you know, what we label as non-inflammatory diarrhea or functional diarrhea compared to um, inflammatory bowel disease. And um, certainly it could be one of those tools that could help one triage whether this patient needs a, an early referral to gastroenterology or not. And, you know, as, as, uh, as you might know, the, the stool calprotectin is a protein present in the neutrophils. It's the dominant protein in the cytoplasm of, of neutrophils. So if you have a density, high density of neutrophils in the intestine, which comes with inflammatory bowel disease, these cells are shed in the stools. And so you see the breakdown products of these cells, including the calprotectin, which uh, is elevated in chronic inflammation, chronic and acute inflammation. I, I should be specific about that. Now, one thing about this is the index of suspicion, right? So if you have somebody with you know, two loose bowel movements a day, no weight loss, um, and it's been like this for two months, and they, the family's concerned about it, they are in your office you know, for the fourth time wondering about this um, diarrhea, loose stools. You've ruled out dietary causes, you know, high intake of, of sugar and um, high intake of lactose in a child who might be starting to be lactose intolerant. Um, so this is you know, uh, uh, now a... Um, low likelihood of a lower likelihood of inflammatory bowel disease because you don't have weight loss, you don't have nighttime symptoms in this scenario. A stool calprotectin can actually be very reassuring if it's in a very, very low range, uh, that it, it has a good value here of ruling out inflammatory conditions in the gut. Um, however, this child has weight loss, this child has um, bloody stools, as, as Colin finally shared with us, um, and long-standing diarrhea now for over two weeks or chronic diarrhea for over two weeks, um, I think the high, the high index of suspicion for bowel inflammation makes me decide, again, that uh, endoscopy and a colonoscopy are warranted regardless of the calprotectin level. So this is also money saved here that this test is not necessary. Again, you see where you know, the pretest probability for the condition should dictate whether we should send it or not and what it means to us to have a, a positive or a negative. There's a flip side to this story, too, that um, in individuals with ileal disease, uh, the sensitivity of stool calprotectin is a little bit lower than colonic disease. In other words, you could have a patient with ileal Crohn's disease presenting with abdominal pain and weight loss who might have a normal stool calprotectin, right? Is that a patient I would want not to perform an endoscopy for or a colonoscopy for? And I would say no, regardless of the calprotectin, abdominal pain, weight loss, that's very serious. And I want to investigate with the gold standard here, which is the endoscopy and the colonoscopy. 
So it is one of the scenarios where I, I think calprotectin might be falsely reassuring if it's normal. I was just going to quickly ask, so like some of the other stool inflammatory markers I've heard of like fecal leukocytes, lactoferrin, like are those things that we should be thinking about? Should we do a hemocult if we're not really sure if they're bleeding? Like are any of these useful? Yeah, great question too. I uh, Probably out of, maybe out of habit, I focus on the calprotectin, but lactoferrin is available, uh, widely available in the States too. I, this, this was actually uh, two or three years ago. I think a cost comparison in our lab, you know, favored one over the other, but that might be different in, uh, in your own institutions. So uh, fecal lactoferrin, which again, similar idea to calprotectin, is uh, probably equally reliable. Nice thing about, you know, the, the, these uh, stool tests uh, is that they're uh, stable at room temperature, which means you don't have to put it in the fridge. So it's, you know, the mousse that nobody should touch, right? And um, nowadays, you know, relatively cheaper than what they used to be. So uh, that's the attractive thing about these samples. Uh, fecal leukocytes. So um, this used to be our, you know, time testing. You guys are super young, right? But, uh, you know, in the 1990s, you know, that was the only thing we had to, you know, look at the uh, higher or lower risk of uh, inflammatory diarrhea is to look at the fecal leukocytes. So it's, it's you know, looking at the leukocytes, right? So you have to take a sample, put it on a slide and, and look at it. Uh, and I think with how cumbersome that test is, and now that we have better surrogates for presence of leukocytes, which is these proteins, calprotectin and lactoferrin, I think uh, a stool white blood cell uh, test is now not quite helpful, and I think it's phasing out. Uh, hemocult is also an interesting uh, test. I, I usually try to look at the question of blood with the stools as, if you don't see it, I probably don't care to know about it, right? And there are also nuances in doing the fecal hemocult sample. You know, if you read the card, uh, if you're a little on the nerdlier side like myself, I try to read, you know, all the instructions on everything from the cooking pan that I, that I buy to the garlic crusher and, and all that. So a bit extreme, but, but I think it serves me well. Um, and so same thing with the hemocult card. If you look at the instructions, you know, you have to put a thin layer, you know, in one of those kits, I should say, you have to put a thin layer, not a thick layer of the stool sample on that card and then you have to let it dry up and wait about 15 minutes sometimes even longer and then you have to use the developer and then wait as well and i think if you put for example a thicker layer of that uh, stool sample on the card it can actually look like it's a positive so it's a false positive and now if you you know false positive hemocult test you go to a google search first thing that comes up is you know colon cancer as one thing you need to rule out right so I think it's uh, it's more of an agonizing uh, test that I don't don't necessarily find um, find helpful. Great, great. Yeah, that's one of the questions I like to talk to my residents about about hemocults. There are lots so many false positives. Like, like if they take NSAIDs, it can cause false positive. Iron supplements. If they had red meat recently, broccoli, exactly. cauliflower, broccoli, all these things yeah, cause was, false positives. Yeah, I was surprised about broccoli too. I thought you know the most benign thing in the universe, and there goes broccoli. But uh, but then again, how many kids are eating broccoli anyway? So. <laughs> in the Northwest, I think it's popular, but <laughs> not in Texas. <laughs> I also heard like vitamin C and like citrus fruits also cause false negatives. So that's yeah. interesting as well. All right. So we've done all these other tests that uh, you've recommended or not done some tests that you've recommended or de decide not to recommend. How do we decide how urgently we need to get him a scope? Should I be like calling him like, hey, we need to scope this kid tomorrow or like what, what should we be doing and how urgently should we be doing this? Yeah, that's a great question too. I think first, um, trying to tease out how severe 
are the symptoms and the consequences of uh, this, you know, likely IBD. Um, and so I would base this on the vital signs, the intensity of the pain that your patient is having, and certainly the first set of blood tests that we talked about. So the severity of the anemia, for example, and then the ability of the child to stay hydrated, you know, for the next probably two-ish uh, weeks or so. Um, what we try to do in our center, uh, because I look at this as, you know, in many ways, an agonizing, you know, waiting period for a parent uh, with a patient who's having blood with the stools. And again, the first go-to is thinking this is cancerous, this is life-threatening. And so I, I try to sort of reassure up front to say the chance of something life-threatening with these symptoms is very, very extremely low. And, and so, you know, again, maybe that takes the edge off of the parent's worry. But I do think, you know, if somebody uh, is stable... Uh, with their blood counts, they're staying hydrated, uh, their level of pain is um, tolerable, manageable with acetaminophen, uh, you know, warm packs. You know, we try our best, our very best to uh, see those uh, kids within 7 to 10 days to expedite their, their workup. But again, if there is significant anemia, a high level of pain, I think that patient should be considered for uh, admission in the hospital to make sure that they're stable, support their body if they need a blood transfusion for severe anemia, uh, hydration, and also expedite the diagnostic workup, which will include an endoscopy and a colonoscopy. Great. It sounded like for Colin, you were, you were ready to go already. But So you mentioned you normally do endoscopy and colonoscopy. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why you do both and then kind of what you're looking for when you go in? It's a great question. Um, we know that... Um, uh, kids uh, probably a little more, a bit more often than adults, could have upper gastrointestinal tract involvement in Crohn's disease, um, and sometimes actually getting samples from the upper gastrointestinal tracts could help us nail the diagnosis of which phenotype is it closer to? Is it closer to uh, Crohn's disease? Is it closer to ulcerative colitis? Specifically, with finding uh, non-caseating granuloma, which is the hallmark of Crohn's disease. And what a granuloma is, is a bunch of macrophages, uh, you know, coalescing together and trying to fight something in the middle. That's also a very, very curious question about what is it in the middle that they're trying to fight. And we find this a little more frequently if we add an upper endoscopy to the uh, colonoscopy. Um, so both um, uh, diagnostic tests are generally done in kids. And just because we were talking about a little bit earlier with celiac on the differential, do you normally take biopsies to evaluate for celiac? Great question, too. Not to single out Nick, but he's asking great questions, y'all. So um, uh, in general, what has uh, been interesting is the, the finding that there is histologic inflammation in areas that look normal grossly on the scope. Uh, and so our routine is to biopsy tissue even if it looks normal. Um, and that adds to your diagnostic value in finding IBD, but also teasing out which phenotype is it closer to you know, one or the other or uh, in between. So you were talking earlier that, you know, when you're talking to the kid, you want to, uh, you know, as you're explaining IBD, you don't like to say, oh, this is Crohn's or, or this is ulcerative colitis. But in the end, like it does make a difference, like which phenotype they are, because it um, can you d describe how that might come about as you're looking at your at your you sort of talked about that a little bit. But after you get your results and you and you make your diagnosis, how does each phenotype factor into what you decide on? Uh, treatment, initiation, prognosis, and how you discuss it with the family? Yeah, great point. Uh, I think the uh, first question is, you know, colonic disease, 
small bowel disease, you know, the terminal ileum, which we can reach with um, ileocolonoscopy, investigating the middle parts of the intestine now between the duodenum and the ileum. And that's when cross-sectional imaging like a CT scan or interrography could come in handy. And then the upper exam that looks at the duodenum, stomach, and the esophagus. And don't ask me why I started from the bottom up, because it's usually the reverse. Um, and uh, I, I look at the question of, you know, is this colonic-only disease? If it's colonic-only disease and the symptoms are fitting with ulcerative colitis, for example, ulcerative colitis tends to affect the growth less intensely and less often than Crohn's disease. So if a patient comes in with, you know, six to eight bloody bound movements a day, uh, minor weight loss uh, or no weight loss, and their inflammation is only in the colon, and their terminal ileum is free of any inflammation, their upper gastrointestinal tract is healthy, then that's a phenotype that looks like ulcerative colitis. If the biopsies do not show me the non-caseating granulomas that supports the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, and for that patient, I might use medications that are not systemic medications. In other words, their effect is limited to the mucosa, and they do not get absorbed into the deeper layers of the intestine, or to the bloodstream in any meaningful amount to treat the entire gastrointestinal tract because this is ulcerative colitis and it doesn't involve the entire gastrointestinal tract and it's not a transmural disease. So in that case, and that's probably the biggest differentiation between these uh, phenotypes, uh, medications such as a mesalamine or sulfasalazine, which is a, essentially a topical treatment from the inside of the lumen, would be appropriate. However, if I have more features of Crohn's disease, you know, let's say that Colin has ileal ulcerations, uh, duodenal ulcerations, or if we do a CT scan and we find, you know, 20 inches of small bowel inflammation, um, then we need a treatment that addresses all of these areas and all of these layers within the intestine. And these treatments are well beyond the mesalamines. So that's the probably the only key differentiating point between both conditions. I remember back when I was a resident, there were lots of different formulations of mesalamine so that it would be like released at different parts. And there's even just like rectal formulations. Can you describe that a little bit? I guess we don't have to go into big nitty gritty because I, I don't think any of us will be prescribing it, but just, just for our sort of know-how. Yeah, I think there was a lot of um, smart thought behind um, delivering, you know, these mesalamines. So they're um, salicylic acid-based treatments, you know, just like, uh, you know, good old um, aspirin. And the smart design was how do you tag them along with a molecule that would only have them release in the colon. So because it's a topical treatment that needs to line up the mucosa, you need the highest concentration of that drug to be released in that part of the intestine. So if you take it as a capsule, of course, it's going to take a lot of hits from digestive enzymes and mechanical you know, uh, uh, squeezing from the contractions of your intestine. And so there were different ways to, to bind it to something that keeps it away from getting absorbed. And some of these were pH dependent, some of these were, um, you know, uh, azo bond that was cleaved by the colonic flora. Um, and that meant that the medicine would be released uh, there. So that's the, I think, uh, design behind these, uh, these different medications. On a practical side, does it really matter with the capsules? Uh, probably not to a huge extent, and we actually don't have a lot of head-to-head -head trials. So in this example of which mesalamine to pick, I would go with, you know, whatever's easiest for my patient to access. And then the size of the tablet is also an issue. Some of them are chunky. Some are designed to have microspheres that you can open up the capsule and still 
get these smaller uh, spheres all the way to the colon with contained and retained uh, medication. And then uh, one of them only, sulfasalazine, is the only one that comes in liquid form, which um, is convenient for younger, younger kids. Now, with the same idea that you want the largest amount of medicine concentrated just in the areas that are inflamed in the colon, this is where rectal therapies come in handy. So you can have the same active ingredient in an enema form, and by using it as an enema, you can really deliver a high concentration to the rectum, maybe to the sigmoid colon, and low likelihood to the descending colon. So if somebody has isolated disease right there, they could be spared from all the capsules that they have to take by mouth and just use the rectal forms very conveniently, and they could be as needed as well. With all this talk about mesalamines, I'm kind of curious about the other, the biggest treatment that I know about for IBD, and that's steroids. Does does everybody get steroids? Do you spare steroids sometimes? So for decades and decades and decades, that's pretty much all that we had, right? Our oldest treatments in IBD have been or had been uh, steroids, which I think they, um, you guys probably are, are bigger history buffs than me about this, but I think steroids have been available from the 30s, uh, uh, 40s onwards. Um, we've had azathioprine or mecaptopurine, which is an immune modulator, 50s onwards. And then sulfasalazine was, uh, if I remember correctly, you know, uh, a little bit later than mercaptopurine and uh, azathioprine. So that's what, all we had for the longest time. And it was not unusual for patients to take, you know, three courses, four courses of uh, steroids a year when they had these ups and downs of their symptoms. What we realized, you know, over the past uh, two decades is, is that in the case of Crohn's disease uh, specifically, uh, steroids improved symptoms, no doubt. They made patients have less pain, which is a good thing, less diarrhea. They you know, as a side effect, steroids uh, increase the appetite, which again is not a bad thing in somebody who's losing weight. However, when you look at how much actual healing is happening internally, uh, steroids are not able to heal to any meaningful uh, degree. So very weak effect here on the healing. So it's a great band-aid for patients. And Fortunately, with uh, time, 1990s onwards, as more understanding of the behavior of the immune cells in IBD um, uh, grew, we realized that we can target some of these byproducts of this immune cell or uh, proteins that the immune cells interact with in the gut. And we started having these designer medications that really targeted these mechanisms. Uh, you know, and, and, and that was, I think, the birth of, uh, of modern IBD treatment, 1990s onwards. And when you compare the degree of healing that we would get with these medications, it is stunning how different uh, they are from the older treatments that we had for, for a long, long time. So these are the quote-unquote biologics, right? Now, they're biologics, and we have you know, the small molecules, and these are the two biggest categories. So a biologic is essentially medicine produced by active cells or live cells, um, and that's the term biologic. And the small molecules are teeny tiny uh, protein fragments that essentially make it to the intracellular space and uh, interfere with some of the functions of the overly stimulated immune cell. But these are the two biggest categories that we have today. So we've talked a lot about you know a couple of different types of medications which we which we use. It almost sounds like we're doing like a, a sort of a step up therapy. Uh, there's another type of therapy um, way that I've heard, uh, like the top-down therapy. Is this something that we do in our pediatrics, and and why would we use it uh, versus a step-up therapy? 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, my generation also is a generation that uh, that grew up with the idea that you start with your weaker, you know, oftentimes cheaper medication treatment, and then you escalate if your patient is not responding. So what changed big time the past 10, 15 years is the understanding that step-up therapy, you know, was um, really not the way to go because uh, it was a fact that the majority of patients, you know, about two-thirds or more of patients, when you do the step-up therapy, end up needing to stepping up, number one. And then we realized that in Crohn's disease, for example, if you treat the inflammation early, and early was at first thought to be within the first two years of diagnosis, there may be some hints that it's actually a lot closer than that, you know, that's to diagnosis, maybe within the first three months is the window to get the best results from your treatments. And that led to the concept of what if we do the top-down approach? So we start with the most effective or most likely medication options to be effective today first. So give that inflammation a big um, hit and then try to de-escalate therapy once the patient is in tip-top shape. And this brought us actually uh, a huge difference in the in the results. I'll, I'll use um, mucosal healing. So uh, we talked about how steroids are a band-aid. And nowadays, our goal of therapy, if we are treating IBD, is for patients to feel great, number one, for kids to grow normal, normally, for their activity level to be normal. So fatigue because of inflammation needs to be gone. For their blood tests, inflammatory markers to be normal. Um, for their bone densities, which is a, a thing that happens in the first two decades, right? We all start losing bone density after two decades of life. And for puberty to progress, we need the inflammation to be well controlled and part of that healing uh, is key and so we are looking now for baseline ulcers before we start treatment healing on a follow-up colonoscopy later because that would be the best guarantee that this patient will do well for years to come and to give you a, 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 an idea if you use the top-down approach so you you bring your most effective medications up front usually a biologic agent plus maybe an immune modulator agent, you end up looking at results of about 70% healing. You go back in and 70% of the time you will see no ulceration, which to me is stunning. It's as good as a cure, except that you have to continue the medication. And if you delay that and you start that two, four, eight years later, the rate of uh, healing might go down to barely you know, 30% or 25%. So there is a price to pay for delaying therapy. And I use that in my conversations with the family to say, if you want the best treatment today in 2021, there's no step-up therapy. You know, it used to be called conventional therapy. Conventional therapy today should be that, you know, top-down approach. And I want to be specific about the patient population. You know, in pediatrics, the overwhelming majority of patients have moderate to severe disease, right? Now, there are exceptions, of course, where Crohn's disease could be super mild. Very few ulcerations in the terminal ileum. The symptoms are not as intense as our patient's um, symptom here in this example. There's no anemia. Uh, there's no growth concerns. And that's a different phenotype that is not common in pediatrics. So you want to speak about the majority of patients and their phenotypes. Most patients need that effective therapy up front. So I was just trying to, trying to clarify, you know, because I'm still a little confused in my mind. So if, if, you know, for a lot of our kids who, are, who tend to be fairly mild, you will still continue to do sort of step-up therapy? Because it sounds like we were talking about this kid maybe starting off with a 5-ASA agent versus you know someone who's much more severe. You really want to hit it harder. So 
if Colin, you know, came in much sicker and definitely on, on your scopes had lots of ulcers, you would start, maybe start with uh, like an anti-TNF or something like that. Is, is that what you're trying to say? Cause I'm still a little confused. Yeah, absolutely. To be clear, um, most patients have moderate or severe disease, not mild disease, most pediatric patients. Okay. And I would say, you know, Colin already has severe disease, right? We're seeing blood with the stools. We're um, seeing his growth be affected. Um, you know, we have, we don't know about the blood test, but we um, could conclude that um, he's anemic. So Colin does have moderate to severe disease. Colin is the perfect example of a patient who would benefit a lot from the you know, most effective therapies up front. One of the unique tools that we have in pediatrics is uh, enteral therapy, where if you change the antigenic stimulation of the gut by changing the diet, even, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy, you know, shake or uh, amino acid-based protein shake or anything like this. It could be any of the commercial shakes that are, you know, available. Some of them are high in sugar, which again is not ideal. But the concept is if you change the antigenic stimulation within the gut and limit you know, what patients are used to eating when they have active inflammation, you actually could improve the symptoms and reduce the inflammation as well as you could for steroids. And you could probably heal the intestine to some degree a little bit better than steroids. So as you asked about uh, steroids, Christopher, this has been sort of our steroid alternative. We start patients on some diet therapy to bring down the inflammatory burden, reduce their symptoms, and also, the more improvement, the, the better their nutritional status is, the more likely they would respond to some of our now, you know, standard therapies, including biologics or anti-TNF uh, agents. So it's been a win-win. We avoid steroids, we avoid their side effects, but we get improvement fast, and we prep our patients for a better response to um, our key treatments, including the biologic agents. We keep on touching on the biologics, but just for our listeners, what are the biologics, like the anti-TNF agents that are approved for pediatric IBD? So the, the first anti-TNF agent that uh, we, we had in the, in the 1990s was um, infliximab, which is an intravenous biologic agent. And this was followed by adalidumab, which is subcutaneous. And since then, there were um, a couple of other uh, subcutaneous anti-TNF medications, sertolizumab. Uh, golimumab. And uh, what was exciting is, you know, this, you know, opened the door for more biologic therapies and then the small molecules. And now we have biologics that work in different mechanisms. So the mechanism of anti-TNF is uh, neutralizing the TNF molecule, which is one of the strongest drivers of inflammation in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, uh, and also in many rheumatologic uh, conditions, enclosing spondylitis, uveitis, uh, psoriasis, and um, uh, subsequent generations of biologics looked at different targets. Uh, for example, um, ustekinumab is an anti-IL-1223. Another example of the newer generations of biologics are the anti-adhesion molecules. So it was a breakthrough when the molecule that interacts with the um, immune cell as it get a, gets attracted to the colonic and small bowel tissue in IBD was a MATCAM uh, protein, which is a uh, mucosal adhesion protein. And this was the protein that the immune cell is attracted to that facilitates the, the trafficking of this immune cell into the tissue. And so blocking one of the proteins on the immune cell that um, interacts with the MATCAM is uh, one of the targets of therapy now. And one of the medications that is available is, uh, is vetalizumab, which uh, blocks that interaction. 
And uh, again, more and more mechanisms, pathways for inflammation are discovered, and, and more and more newer therapies we're likely, we're likely to see. The small molecule medications such as uh, tofacitinib and now ozonamide also handle uh, the inflammation pathway at different targets. One is a, a JAK inhibitor, and the JAK is one of the key uh, mediators uh, of cellular activity. Uh, in the immune cell. In other words, it's one of the step-ups from TNF-alpha molecule um, that affects multiple pathways of inflammation, and the JAK inhibitors target that molecule. And then Ozanamod is uh, a newer medication that controls the trafficking of the lymphocyte out of the lymph nodes and into the intestine. So that's another mechanism. So it's exciting. It's a very exciting field nowadays. Again, there, there are newer pathways being discovered, and with every new pathway, we get a glimpse of targeting the inflammation. And a bigger concept, you know, behind us also is, or in front of us, is the fact that the biology of the inflammation cannot be assumed to be static. In other words, you know, how uh, the biology of, of the body is today with, uh, you know, a nine-year-old having Crohn's disease who's on treatment for five or 10 or 15 years might change. And that's why we see some changes in how patients respond to medications after a while. Awesome. Well, so getting back to our case, you know, Colin, with the help of our, our friendly pediatric gastroenterologist, is started on good therapy and goes home. And so, Brian, do you want to tell us what happens afterwards? Sure. So he comes to you one year later and is doing well, and he's in your primary care clinic for a sports physical because he now feels well enough to go out for the swim team. He feels healthy and has good energy. I think one of the questions people ask a lot with IBD is, can kids with IBD expect to live a normal, healthy life? The short answer is absolutely yes. Uh, once we get our kids into a good state of remission, and again, we define remission as resolution of symptoms, uh, biochemical remission where the blood tests are not showing active inflammation, uh, nutritional deficiencies are corrected because the bowel now is not inflamed, and um, there is mucosal healing. This is a deep state of remission that uh, we would love to get all of our patients to. With that, I think a patient in that state should be able to do anything any other child is capable of without restriction. I do think there may be uncommon restrictions where, um, you know, especially with um, our newer treatments, the biologic agents, small molecules, where, um, you know, a child or an adult actually needs to go out of their way to get a bad infection as a consequence of being on these medications. Um, you, know, you know, fungal infections that are absolutely uncommon, you know, uh, something like, you know, cave exploring where you get exposed to bat feces, you know, that's, that's one area where I would say, well, if that's your hobby, you know, you probably shouldn't take this medication or, you know, don't pick up that hobby, right? Um, our patients who wanna do great work and volunteer in places where individuals could have tuberculosis, active tuberculosis, Probably not the best of idea to um, TNF is you know one of the mechanisms uh, that our our body cells use to you know defend itself too and regulates um, a lot of that uh, immune response. So you know acquiring tuberculosis would be one of the bigger concerns. So short of these two conditions, I think you know th there is really no no limitation that I could see physical ability, you know ability to to, to travel, ability to tolerate stress. I think that's a big thing that comes up. Right, uh, most of us get IBS, you know, before you know med school exams or uh, or residency exams or after you know a couple of nights of call. 
patient who's in deep remission with IBD should not expect their IBD to flare. They certainly could get the same IBS you know, type symptoms that, that you know, anybody else gets. So that's what comes with the idea of being normal, right? Having these occasional upper respiratory tract infections or stomach flus uh, or IBS type symptoms or dietary intolerances, which, is, which are very, very common you know, in individuals with or without IBD. So respiratory infections, COVID might be one of those. Should we advise our patients who are immunocompromised to get the vaccine, get the COVID vaccine now that it's available for kids? That's a great question, uh, Brian. You know, to answer that question, because we did not know at the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic how uh, patients with IBD on treatments would, would fare with, uh, with this infection. It's one of the beautiful examples of, uh, of essentially worldwide IBD expertise coming together to participate in uh, the secure registry. Uh, again, brilliant colleagues um, led on, on this effort. And early on, we were having data shared from, you know, from uh, China, from the, you know, Far East Asia, from uh, Near East, Middle East, Europe, Africa, North and South America. And the registry was so meaningful, pointing out um, what the actual risk for patients with IBD was. And it turns out that um, patients with IBD did not have a higher risk of getting COVID. And if they did get COVID, they did not ha have a higher risk of severe COVID or fatal COVID. And the risk sort of uh, went by age, similar to the risk of COVID with, uh, without any other risk factor. So the, you know, the older age is on its own a big uh, risk factor. Uh, steroids, you know, seem to be a, a risk for some patients. In fact, you know, if you look at the biologics, you know, the anti-TNF biologics specifically, there seemed to be a lower mortality risk in individuals who got COVID on these biologics. So it, we, we think it may have to do with the overwhelming immune response that uh, COVID might trigger when it causes the multi-inflammatory complications in, uh, in the body. And so anti-TNF uh, blockage may actually reduce that overreaction. So we think that might, might have been uh, the reason why we saw fewer mortality or less mortality in patients on biologics. Perfect. And even when they're on these um, like immunologic therapies, do you think, is it still recommended for them to get the vaccine itself? Or do you need to you know time it the right way? Or um, I, I do think the vaccine is a great idea for um, patients with IBD. Um, and although, again, patients with IBD that I take care of are younger, uh, so the risk of severe COVID we know is more in older individuals, I do think there, the risk is not zero in younger individuals. And it's um, clear that a small risk could be much, 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 much smaller in vaccinated individuals with uh, IBD. We also know that vaccination could actually reduce the risk of carrying COVID and transmitting COVID. So it's also benefiting individuals around patients who get vaccinated. Fortunately, the vaccines have been, the standard vaccines that are recommended in the United States have been effective for patients with IBD. There may be a slight decrease in the response, but not low to say it's not worth it. It's still very much so worth it. Um, and also, we have not seen any uh, higher risk of side effect from these vaccines, which are generally very safe in patients on any kind of treatment. In terms of the timing, you know, we, we don't have um, enough data to say clearly one way or the other. What we have recommended as a practical point is if patients have some control over the timing uh, of the vaccination, you know, out of 
probably good practice. Makes sense to put it halfway between the doses of their medications if they're, you know, um, not daily medications. Um, and if there's, you know, no uh, uh, range or no flexibility with the timing of the vaccine, we'd rather have the vaccine than worry about um, the timing. But the timing itself, you know, in the handful of patients uh, reported where it was close to the timing of their biologic agent, for example, uh, did not make uh, uh, raise any concerns for side effects or lower degrees of response. That's that's so good to know. <laughs> so, what other things should the PCP be watching out for with IBD patients in remission? I think you know IBD uh, is a great example of wonderful partnerships between gastroenterologists and. Uh, general providers, you know, pediatric providers and, and adult providers. Um, without this partnership, I think patients have, have in a way, a lot, uh, a lot to lose. I will confess, you know, my, uh, my skills as a general pediatrician, you know, having been in gastroenterology for about 20 years, you know, from fellowship to, uh, to current practice. So it would be, uh, you know, very wise to have our patients maintain a wonderful close relationship with their primary providers, um, to check on their growth, uh, check on um, their uh, bone health. We do follow it, but I also think it's a good idea to follow it by the uh, primary provider. Uh, vaccination schedule, you know, uh, also keeping in mind that patients on biologics should not get live vaccines, but they can get non-live vaccines. Um, so I think it is absolutely necessary uh, to keep that relationship going with um, the primary care providers. Um, and it's important for us, you know, gastroenterologists and primary care providers to maintain, you know, open access to um, our summaries, our notes, uh, reaching out to each other for questions, partnering on challenging uh, IBD scenarios, patients who have anxiety or depression, which are very common in IBD and nowadays with COVID more common than ever. Um, so it's really a, a super valuable um, a partnership that that I cannot I cannot really uh, emphasize enough. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Uh, I mean, you, you just spent you know the last you know almost hour and a half giving us such great pearls about IBD. Um, before we go, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything that you want our audience, our listeners, to know about you or something that you're you're passionate about? Before we go. Um. I would say I'm very passionate about, um, you know, eating well and uh, enjoying food at the same time and balancing things out. And especially, I say that especially for patients. I think sometimes patients or us providers wanting to be, you know, super protective, try to um, over-restrict our patients from having uh, foods that they really want to have. That said, I, I also think that we could have our patients eat a reasonable diet with some, you know, quote, not so good food every so often if that brings peace and uh, joy to them uh, you know in and their families um, and I would say for us physicians too and and uh, uh, care providers you know educating ourselves about eating healthy and chewing our food really well I care a lot about chewing as, as Brian knows um, is probably the one message I want to leave with everybody <laughs> eat well and chew well Excellent. Any, any remaining pearls you want our audience to know specifically about IBD? What, if they walk away from this, what's the one thing that they need to know about? You know, so be on the lookout for IBD in patients with, uh, with uh, chronic symptoms and also offer reassurance 
upfront because it turns out after we talk to our patients, once we make the diagnosis, that that's all they think about is that this is cancer and this is a life-threatening thing when, when they're waiting. And that these are agonizing uh, days or weeks of waiting that um, it would help a lot to take that out and, and reassure your patients that your differential does not include horrible things and that their kids will be okay. Excellent. Thank you so much. Anything else, guys? We're good? Yeah, thank you so much, guys. This is the coolest thing I've ever done. I'm <laughs> sure that's not true. <laughs> <laughs>